Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. I'm pleased to be joined by Nick Johnson, co-author with me on, on Modern Monopolies. Good morning, Nick. Good morning, Alex. Great to have you back on the show. It's been a minute. A little, little pandemic interruption to our usual activities, but we're back at it. Let's talk about what network effects are. And, and then I want to layer in aggregator theory. So, you know, I think when we, when we think about the classic definition of network effects and what we have in the book, right, is we talk a lot about two-sided network effects. So you have, a, you have not one, but two network effects. You have uh, demand and you have supply. We call them consumers and we call them producers, right, on the demand and on the supply side. And the whole idea is that as you build more demand, as you build more supply, you know, every additional user helps you gain another user. And eventually you hit this, this tipping point of critical mass. And that, you know, that tipping point is when those network effects uh, stop working against you and actually start working for you. They actually start helping you, right? Where the cost of, of acquiring a new user is actually, is actually becoming decreased because you have that critical mass, right? That just the power in the network alone creates value for, uh, you know, either a consumer or a producer or both to join the platform and join the ecosystem. What else would you add to that? Basically, a network effect, the basic idea is that there's an incremental benefit to any existing user for every new user that joins the network. That's it. Simply, basically, there's increasing returns and increasing value to the people currently in the network when more people join. Uh, a simple example of that is like the telephone. The more people that have telephones, more people you can call, more people can call you. Uh, I think that there's typically, they talk about two kinds of network effects, direct and indirect. I think in practice, uh, direct basically means any user that joins the network is value to all other users. Indirect is typically what we talk about in the context of platforms where you have multiple sides and the more that join one side, the more it benefits the other side. So the more consumers you have, the more producers uh, that benefits and vice versa. I think in practice, almost all network effects in the context of platforms are indirect, even when you have ones where you have the same user like Facebook, which often says that a lot of people say has direct network effects or an Instagram. In practice, what it really is, is people acting in different roles, even though it's the same person. And sometimes you're acting as a consumer and other times you're acting as a producer. And as the platform, they very intentionally cater to trying to get people to act in those different roles and provide tools to do so. Um, hence why there's some confusion because it's the same person. So you just think direct network effects. But in practice and how the platform is actually designed, it's indirect and the same person acting in different roles. Can you have network effects only on one side of the platform? For example, can you have network effects only on the demand side of, I guess it's not a platform at that point, of your business? You, I mean, network effects can exist. Uh, an example would be like you know, Netflix. A lot of people talk about network effects of, oh, the more people join, you know, the better data Netflix gets and the more better recommendations they can make. Curation, right? Where if you get more demand, more people clicking, you learn about their behavior and now you can better cater to that to that demand audience. Something like that, right, I guess? Right, but in practice, if you're not a, if Netflix still, as we've talked about many times, not a platform business, 
by definition, really, platforms have both demand and supply side network effects, and they have that cross side network effect uh, between those groups. So let's let's talk about aggregation theory here. So aggregation theory, Ben Thompson, friend, smart guy. We agree on most things. I'd say on the sliver where we disagree would be around kind of his theory around aggregation theory and platform business models. You know, aggregation theory, the way I would describe it is basically discrediting the value of the supply side network effect, right? Where um, really what he says is the value is being the aggregator of demand. And if you can be the aggregator of demand, that is the be all end all. If you can lock in demand and scale and scale demand, then what you're doing on the supply side is less important. Did I get that right? How would you describe it? Yeah, I think I think that's a fair assessment. I think my response to that would be that it depends very much on the market dynamics, meaning how many competitors you have, if any, and the stage of the market. I think in practice, you can see that you know this theory doesn't play out. I mean, you see where most platforms actually competed typically is most aggressively on the supply side. Uber and Lyft giving thousands of dollars away in subsidies to drivers. Uber doing allegedly at least borderline illegal things to steal drivers from Lyft. Most platforms, particularly in the growth stage, when you have multiple competitors, are competing the most aggressively on the supply side, particularly when there's limited supply. And I think, you know, that point is key where Netflix is a great example of aggregator theory. It's not a good example of platform, as you're saying, right? And I think when when you're talking about that competition, I'd say the dynamic of going back to network effects, you have two-sided network effects. You've got your demand and your supply side network effect. It's not solely about the demand side. Instead, what we're saying is these things feed off of each other, right? Yeah. And and that's what you hear this chicken and egg problem, right? The chicken and egg problem is the classic platform problem. Every platform experiences this problem a myriad of times throughout its its life cycle and and its growth. At every every kind of threshold of scale the platform achieves, it kind of has yet another chicken and egg problem. Chicken and egg problem doesn't exist when you have a, a linear model which could which which could fit the aggregator theory model. Aggregator theory basically here's another way to think about it. Um, every platform doesn't fit aggregator theory, but every aggregator theory could fit a platform model right? Where aggregator theory isn't giving credence to the supply side. A platform could still fit aggregator theory, but the aggregator theory or what's considered an aggregator doesn't mean they're automatically a platform because of this supply side network effect dynamic. So you don't really have the chicken and egg problem in in something like a Netflix because the supply side is not from third-party producers, right? That supply is actually on the balance sheet of the business, Netflix. That supply is not being contributed by a network or an ecosystem of third-party producers. And I think as you're, to your point, the challenge with that is that there's really a, a much smaller moat, a much smaller sense of defensibility, right? That's why, for example, Disney Plus in what, uh, six, eight months has over 100 million subscribers. And it doesn't mean that they're beating Netflix, but you would never be able to see, you would never, like if you take YouTube, the platform equivalent of Netflix, you would never be able to see a competitor 
come in, a large incumbent, spend a few billion dollars and come in. We saw this with Microsoft trying to go after iOS and Android, right? Microsoft didn't hold a flame and there, there would not be a scenario where you could catch up relatively quickly to the dominant platform monopoly in a given space. Let's say YouTube. Another case in point of that would be what IAC did with Vimeo. They were IAC understands platforms really, really well. Barry Diller, Expedia, Expedia's in Plat, Tinder, right? Uh, uh, Match Group. They have multiple platform, public platform businesses. They understand platforms really well. They tried to give YouTube a run for their money. What is Vimeo doing now? It's not a YouTube competitor because that dynamic of capturing that supply side network effect really gives the defensibility um, to this to the platform model. It helps protect the margins, the profit margins, the economics of the business. And I think it rolls directly into why you see, you know, these dominant platforms having the highest multiples on the market, including as compared to, you know, fast growing linear tech businesses, which could be a, a SaaS provider or it could be a, you know, a Netflix. But anything else you'd add to that? Yeah, I think a, a good recent example is Mixer with Microsoft. They couldn't compete with all the supply the Twitter, uh, sorry, Twitch had. They tried to buy a couple, but from there, basically, they're not getting all the supply, so the customers aren't showing up, and vice versa. Uh, it's really both sides that defined it, not just that they couldn't get the customers. I think that's a great point. Um, Nick, you've got some work to do. We'll leave you. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. And, and hopefully we'll get, we'll get you in on more of these going forward. Always great to have you come on. Thanks, Alex. So it's a little bit about what our network affects. Um, what's this Jack Henry thing here? So if anyone has not heard of Jack Henry, let's, let's go to the bio on Jack Henry. Jack Henry is a leading provider of technology solutions primarily for the financial services industry. S&P 500 company, 9,000 clients. Basically, for all of the like community banks and kind of like smaller, say, um, you know, uh, uh, like credit unions. So these smaller finance, financial institutions still have billions of dollars in assets, but not tens of billions of dollars. Normally, they might have some, but but usually, you know, if if you are under, um, if you are under ten billion dollars in assets, you're kind of in that community bank bucket. Um, so for all those banks that can't go build technology from scratch for themselves, they rely on other financial software providers like a Jack Henry. There's other ones like uh, FIS and FinServe and, uh, you know, a, a number of others. There's actually a lot of private equity money that owns a number of these solutions. Um, KKR has, a, has their solution. Um, uh, Vista has, has, has a stake in the ground here. Uh, Tomo Bravo has a stake in the ground. So Jack Henry is public, however, and uh, and basically what they're launching here, which is pretty cool, is online marketplaces for commercial loans. Um, so commercial loans, you know, let's be clear, that's that's not an an SME loan. That's not a you know I've got a small business and I need a, a business loan loan. No, these are um, companies. I mean, these are loans for for mid market companies. Uh, so so this is not from like the retail bank. Uh, even if you have a small business that's maybe, I don't know, every bank has a different threshold, right? But if you've got a $10 million, $20 million business, 
you're in the retail bank. These are much larger businesses, mid-market companies that have some form of credit rating, you know, have hundreds of employees at the very least. And uh, so, so this paper, these loans are, are not as risky as, say, a small business loan. They're less risky loans. They're, they're a little bit easier to package up. Um, so, you know, that's where you can kind of have this, this idea of like tranching out a bunch of loans, securitizing loans. You know, if you rewind the clock to t- 2008 with CDOs, right? CDOs um, and what was going on with real estate, you take like a hundred or a thousand different mortgage loans, batch them all together into one package, and then they were selling off slivers of the package. Not saying that's what this is, but because of um, a, a little bit less risk, these loans for a little bit larger, you know, mid-market companies, you are able to do that kind of stuff. Point being, what this marketplace is enabling is the Jack Henry Loan Marketplace provides unbiased access to opportunities from financial institutions across the country. It centralizes communications and transactions related to the purchase, sale, and trade of these loans, plus directly connects counterparties to eliminate the need for a broker. Jack Henry Loan Mar- Marketplace a- allows loans to be presented as single transactions or pooled together and can accommodate any lending asset class. So, right, you could kind of say, I mean, I just want to sell or buy this individual loan, or you could then, right, roll these things up and, and buy a, a package of loans, um, which is cool. We have seen some of this going on in Europe where there are lending marketplaces in Europe that are helping um, helping some European banks do something similar to this. Um the difference with this model is you have the software provider to a bunch of small, mid-sized banks, community banks, credit unions, providing this functionality to all of their banking clients. Uh, this is a great kind of like Trojan horse for the lending marketplace model. In Europe, you see a bunch of lending marketplace startups, some of whom are in this kind of um, <clears throat> still uh, secured loans less risky loans, marketplace model. Um, but they work directly with, with large European banks, right? As opposed to this model, which is going through the, the software provider that works with a bunch of smaller banks to enable this functionality. I really like this play. I really like this play a lot. Starting in the mid-market makes sense because it's, it's less risky. It's going to be easier to get, I think, some of these banks to collaborate with each other. So... Um, you know, there's kind of two buckets of loans. If I was to overgeneralize where you see marketplace dynamics and loans is you have these secured loans, less risky loans, kind of like what Jack Henry is focusing on. And then you have unsecured loans or riskier loans. You see a lot of lending marketplaces in the latter bucket helping to bring, you know, for example, um, if you can't get a loan for your small business from a, from a traditional bank, there's a whole world of alternative lenders in the United States that um, you could have a strong business, but banks, because of COVID, are actually just becoming even tighter on who and what they're lending to these days, unfortunately. So there's actually a big need for, you could still have a strong business, um, but it might be untraditional or you know there might be some quirks to it <clears throat> or whatever it is. And the bank just doesn't want to deal with you um, or wants a bunch of requirements and isn't going to give you much money. So there are a bunch of alternative lenders in the United States. These could be fintech lenders. These could be, um, 
you know, non-banking financial institutions. These could be kind of like hedge funds. These could be um, what you call MCAs, merchant cash advanced lenders. So there's a wide spectrum. We see a lot of lending marketplaces, both in the US and in Europe, that focus on these kind of unsecured, riskier loans, many of them for small businesses, but also some for uh, personal kind of, you know, consumer loans. And, and so this is starting in, in the less risky. There are less lending marketplace startups in this area, but there are some. I like this play because if you think about the network of Jack Henry, they have thousands of these smaller banks. A bank can now be both a buyer and a seller on the platform, right? You, one of the strategies we talk about for solving that chicken and egg problem we were just talking about, Etsy did this, right? Where Etsy said, hey, actually, a lot of my best customers are the people making products and selling them on Etsy. So, you know, if you focus in on a specific type of user, for Etsy's case, it was saying, let's just go after people that make these homemade kind of craft goods because they love to buy stuff off Etsy and they can be a seller. And so, you know, you get, you get a, a twofer basically. So um, <clears throat> you have a twofer dynamic with, uh, with these less risky kind of mid-market loans. It's a great place to start. Um, another business, which is, I'd say, even even handling uh, loans that are ev- even less risky, right? So another kind of step up the rung on the ladder um, is market access, which we've spoke, which is in Platt, public company. They're just on fire, up about $500 a share. They were down around maybe three, 350. Yeah. What was this in March? 310. Mm. Up about 500 now, uh, about $19 billion market cap. Great company, unbelievable company. Just destroying. You know, a lot of these investment banks have like bond trading desks. And, and this idea of cutting out the broker, as we saw in this Jack Henry press release. That's market access in a nutshell, but for, the, um, for, for even bigger loans that um, are more easily, you know, kind of have more classical kind of credit ratings and, um, I would say in that sense, they're actually a little bit more commoditized if you think about it, right? If you have larger loans, you can have a credit rating agency assign here, here's the credit rating of the business. You know, you can look less at what specific business is this loan from, and you can look more at, um, you know, what's the credit rating, what's the industry, and you can start to package these things up across industries. So, it just, it, it, it starts to, it makes the diligence a lot easier. It makes it much uh, uh, more liquid because, you know, the assets are just more stable and reliable, more of a kind of a, a known entity. Um, but, you know, I think what you're seeing is you're seeing a gradual, um, you're seeing a gradual evolution of lending marketplaces or, or sorry, loan marketplaces rather going from, you know, the top of the funnel market access now you got something like a Jack Henry uh, loan marketplace for for commercial loans, and then and and then you also have the um, you know the even riskier SMB kind of unsecured uh, lending marketplace startups. So I think you know what you're seeing is you're seeing you know um, loan marketplaces across the spectrum, and uh, Jack Henry really making a great move here to to launch something like this. Be curious to see. Um, if Jack Henry starts to move downstream, I don't know if they really move upstream. 
to me, I think where you have, you know, I mean, then you're competing with market access. That's kind of a whole other ballgame. But there's still a lot of white space if you go downstream. There's still a lot of white space if you get if you get good critical mass on commercial loans with your existing kind of smaller bank customers. Then I think you go downstream. Then I think you go into, you know, SMB loans um, that are a little bit riskier. Uh, where there are existing loan lending marketplace startups. Uh, maybe there's an acquisition in there somewhere, but love this play. Love this play. Really cool. Last topic. Apple v. Fortnite. Who's going to win, right? Let's, we can put up a little poll. Apple or Fortnite? Who's going to come out on top of this? Uh, Fortnite wants to not pay Apple its 30%. Apple kicked him off the, the app store. Um, everyone get their votes in. I'm going with Apple. <laughs> um, I, I, Apple, what, didn't they just become a $2 trillion company? Pretty sure they did. Yep, $2 trillion on the dot. There it is. Bam. The the 2T, the 2T, I'm, I'm, I'm going with the 2T on this one. I don't think 2T is, is going to capitulate to Fortnite. You know, it's just, it just not in the cards. Now, what is interesting if you think about um, Fortnite's gripe is, you know, they don't, they don't want to pay these fees. You know, I, I don't think Apple's really deviating from what they've said in the past, right? If you're, if you're buying stuff in a game, then Apple's going to take its 30%. It's pretty straightforward. Um, don't really see how you win this one. Uh, maybe Fortnite's just trying to jump on the fervor of kind of the anti-Apple App Store sentiment amongst developers that are starting to get a um, little uh, antsy or uppity in, in, their, in their public critiques of Apple's policies. But no court is going to tell Apple to capitulate to Fortnite. I can tell you that much. Certainly not in the next five years. So even though Fortnite is saying they're gonna or Epic Games um, is gonna you know challenge this in court, or, yeah, I I really see very little risk to Apple. The only reason they would capitulate is weak leadership, and if you know Tim and the other executives there, um, if if they do seed ground on this, then I think that will be a grave mistake that will open the floodgates for developers to continue to behave in this way and then be rewarded for the behavior. So, you know, give a mouse, is it? Give a mouse a cookie, or give a mouse a crumb. It's going to want the whole cookie. Better not give them the crumb. because They're going to want that whole cookie. So um, I don't think Apple will do that. They've been very strong on this. I think they've, they've been, there's been some confusion in how they've communicated on this front, but uh, I don't think they make a grave mistake like that. So. Um, I don't know. I think it's much ado about nothing, basically. So on that note, have a great rest of your week. Have a great weekend. Thanks for joining us on Winner Take All. I'll talk to you next week.